0: If you would, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Once again, we'll be reading through the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And if you would, read along with me. Again, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Upon it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner within who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our God, our Father, We once again come to you, Lord, as we are slowly walking through these Ten Commandments which are foundational to all the law in the Old Testament, Lord, which are closely related to your character, Lord, which are laws that transcend both Old and New Testament. God, I pray as we look at these laws that you would reveal our hearts to us, Lord, that our hearts from birth are wicked, Lord. are depraved. And I pray that the law, Lord, reveals that so that we would seek your grace. God as we walk through these 10 commandments, Lord, I pray that we see very clearly that the standard is so high, that perfection is so high that we fail. that we will never earn a relationship with you. We will never earn salvation through the law, that the law would turn us to your grace, God, that your law would point us to Jesus, the life he lived, the death he died, or it would point us to the resurrection, knowing that he is our only way to life, Lord, with you, everlasting life. God, I pray that we value that more than anything else this world has to offer That we would seek you with everything we have, willing to sacrifice it all, Lord, because we know that you are the true author of joy and satisfaction and pleasure. God, be with us this morning in your son's name. Amen. We, of course, are continuing our sermon series, the summer series, uh, through the Ten Commandments. Today we come to the Seventh Commandment. Again, verse 14. Simply says, You shall not commit adultery. Again, like the sixth commandment, very short, simple command. Now, there's a lot I want to cover this morning, so I'd like to just really jump right into the sermon. I have three questions I want to answer this morning. Uh, The first question is this Why is marriage such a big deal? Why is marriage such a big deal? The second question is What is adultery? What is adultery? And finally, the third question, what should I do about my adulterous heart? What should I do about my adulterous heart? This will be kind of the outline of the sermon this morning, answering these three questions. And the first question, again, is why is marriage such a big deal? If you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this question. We'll focus on the second two questions and spend most of our time on those questions. But one of the things I like to do in premarital counseling is the very first time we meet is lay down the theological reasons for marriage, uh, the reason why the reasons why marriage is such a big deal, why marriage is weighty. I like to do that because I want to know, I want these couples to know what they're getting into, and I want them to see that marriage is really a lot bigger than just them. If you would again look at Ephesians. Chapter 5, verse 31. Ephesians chapter 5, as Daniel read, the first part of this passage this morning is really one of the greatest passages on marriage in all of Scripture. And I always find myself going to this passage in the very beginning of premarital counseling. In fact, in the weddings that I do, the sermon that I give, the message I give, always fi- I find myself here at Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 31 says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now Paul here is the author of Ephesians, he's writing to the church of Ephesus and he's quoting Genesis, showing that marriage was established by God from the very beginning. According to scripture, marriage is a one flesh covenantal union between one man and one woman. Because our culture is so confused on this I just want to be clear Anything outside of one man and one woman is not marriage It's not biblical marriage It may be called marriage But it's not biblical marriage One man, one woman Paul makes this very clear by quoting Genesis Again, verse 31 Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother And hold fast to his wife And the two shall become one flesh Then verse 32 This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, I wish I could spend more time on this. In fact, we could do a whole sermon or a whole set of sermon series on the importance of marriage. But let me just say one thing that I really think will show the importance, the weightiness of marriage. God didn't look down and see The marriages between man and woman, and say to himself, Wow, I think I could use that. Or that could be a great analogy of Christ's love for the church. Now, the Bible is very clear Christ's love for the church spans from eternity past to eternity future. We see it in Genesis, the first two chapters of Genesis, and read the last few chapters of the Bible, the last few chapters of Revelation, what do you see? Marriage. But before Genesis and after Revelation, we see Christ's love for the church spans from eternity past to eternity future. In other words, God created marriage to be a testimony to something bigger, to Christ's love for the church and not the other way around. Meaning, your marriage—I want you to hear this— your marriage is bigger than just your marriage. It's bigger than just your marriage. In one sense, your marriage is not about you and your spouse. Did you hear that? This is what I want that the couple to get as they're entering into the, the, the covenantal marriage union. That the—, the The vows that they are making to each other, the wedding day, their marriage, is bigger than them. It's not about them. It's not about you and your spouse. Paul says it's about Christ and the church. Again, verse 32 this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Your marriage was meant to be a testimony of Christ's love for the church. That's so important because it's extremely weighty. It's weighty. And I want you to hear that. Not only that, your marriage is also the most important relationship within the family. Within the family, the marriage relationship is the most important relationship. It's foundational to the family. It's foundational to your family. It's a testimony to your family of Christ's love for the church. It's important. It's weighty. And again, I'd like to spend more time on this, but I want to answer these second two questions. But before I move on, let me say one more thing about marriage. Sex, within the marriage covenant, is a gift. It's a gift gift from God. It's meant to be enjoyed within the marriage covenant. It's meant to bring intimacy between husband and wife. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing, but only in its right place. So this leads me to my second point this morning. What is adultery? What is adultery? Now, the simple answer to this question, adultery is marital infidelity, simple answer. In fact, the words translated to adultery in both Hebrew and Greek, meaning in both the Old and New Testament, just mean sexual intercourse with someone other than one's own spouse. In other words, it's being unfaithful to your spouse. It's breaking the marriage covenant, and it's a big deal. It's a big deal because marriage is a big deal, it's a big deal because it destroys, it's destructive. It destroys that testimony talked about in Ephesians 5, this, this testimony to Christ's love for the church. It destroys marriages, it destroys lives, it destroys families. It destroys people's personal testimonies. It destroys relationships. In fact, adultery really chips away at the foundation of society itself. Think about it. I've said this a number of times. The family is the smallest and most important unit unit within society. It's foundational to society, the family, and marriage is the most important relationship within the family. In other words, if you want to destroy society, destroy the family. What do you think the devil is trying to do right now to our society? If you want to destroy society, destroy the family. If you want to destroy the family, destroy marriage. And if you want to destroy marriage, commit adultery. Again, adultery chips away at the very foundation of society itself. This is one of the reasons why the penalty for adultery was so severe in the Old Testament for Israel. Leviticus 20 verse 10 says this, if a man commits adultery with The wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. For Israel, adultery, this is important, for Israel, adultery was an issue of national security. This is why Deuteronomy 22, 22 says this, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lie with the woman and the woman, you shall purge the evil from Israel. God understood that the consequences for a nation that turn a blind eye to adultery is destruction. It would only be a matter of time before an entire nation would crumble upon itself. Therefore, God commanded Israel to purge the evil from Israel by putting to death both the adulterer and the adulteress. So again, in one sense, the seventh commandment is pretty simple to understand. In Exodus 20, verse 14, again, says you shall not commit adultery. You shall not have a sexual relationship with anyone other than your own wife or husband. And the penalty for adultery is severe, especially for the nation of Israel, because it was so destructive. It's destructive for a nation but is this really the extent of the seventh commandment? If you would, turn with me once again to Matthew chapter 5, this time in verse 27. We are going to look at Jesus' interpretation of the law, his interpretation of the seventh commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' sermon that he is proclaiming, and through it he goes through the law and clarifies and teaches on the law. And again, I've said this about the sixth commandment, but I want you to think about this. This is Jesus— God the Son, meaning God himself, the second member of the Trinity, this is Jesus proclaiming what the seventh commandment truly means. Meaning Jesus, God, when, when he spoke on Mount Sinai, God, and said, you shall not commit adultery, Jesus is about to tell us what he meant by that. So if you would, look at verse 27, it says this, This is Jesus again in the middle of his sermon. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's just word for word, Exodus 20, verse 14, what was proclaimed on Mount Sinai. But look at verse 28. This is what Jesus says, but I say to you. Now, once again, just like the sixth commandment, Jesus is not challenging scripture. He's not criticizing what was said at Mount Sinai. He is challenging the traditional interpretation of that commandment. How man has interpreted it over the centuries, which simply was: as long as you don't have a physical, uh, physical adultery with someone, you're not breaking the seventh commandment. Maybe the Jews have taught that the seventh commandment was only concerned with an outward action, external action, right? the physical act of adultery. In other words, in fact. I thought it was interesting as I was studying the 7th commandment that most Jewish commentary, commentaries on the 7th commandment during the time of Jesus, is most of the sources we see as they are explaining what the 7th commandment was about, didn't relate the 7th commandment to faithfulness or purity. They didn't relate it to that. Instead, they more saw the 7th commandment as a prohibition against theft. In other words, to commit adultery was to steal someone's wife. Now, that's true in one sense, but this is a very physical, external way of understanding the seventh commandment. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows us that when you correctly understand the seventh commandment, it has more to do with faithfulness and purity. And not just physical purity, but purity within the heart. So again, if you would, look at verse 27. It says this, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, even if you look at a woman or a man with lustful intent, you have already committed adultery within your heart. In other words, just like the sixth commandment, Jesus takes the seventh commandment and applies it to the heart. Inwardly, not just externally. He gets right to the root of physical adultery. I mean, think about it. All physical infidelity starts with, within the heart. I mean, no one has ever had a, a physical affair, or physically cheated on their spouse with, without lusting first within the heart. Just like anger within the heart is the root of murder, lust Within the heart is the root of adultery. And Jesus is warning us, God doesn't just judge external actions. He judges the heart. This was super clear in the Old Testament, by the way. Jesus is just interpreting the seventh commandment correctly, letting the Pharisees who thought they were righteous because they never physically murdered anyone because they never physically committed adultery He's letting them know that they're not righteous because within the heart, they have murdered. Within the heart, they have committed adultery. Now, what Jesus says, I think, is actually really interesting because it reveals the depravity within our hearts. Look at what he says in verse 28. He says this, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now that's interesting because I I would think he would say something like this. Everyone who looks at a woman and then lusts then commits adultery. That's not what he says. Look what he says. Look what comes first. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Meaning, the lust. Within the heart, the adultery within the heart comes first before the look. Everyone who looks at a woman has already committed adultery. That's what he's saying. It's the lust within our heart that causes the look, it's not the look that causes the lust. In other words, by Jesus' interpretation, you cannot blame lust on externals. You can't blame our our highly sexualized society on your lust problems. It's not an outward in, it's an inward out. It's our heart first, meaning if you catch yourself lusting, I want you to hear this, if you catch yourself lusting, that's just a revelation of what's already inside your heart. You're, You're an adulterer in the heart, therefore you lust. Jesus is saying, when you lust with the eye, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. It's just a revelation of how depraved the heart is. How sinful we truly are. Now, I want to be clear. I believe Jesus' interpretation does at least two things. It does two things. First, it makes the standard so high that any form of sex or lust in the heart or physical, anything outside of sex in a biblical marriage, one man and one woman is sin. I mean, just follow the logic. If just lusting is breaking the seventh commandment, then everything else that comes from lust is sin. Sex before marriage, cohabitation, affairs, lusting, lusting, viewing pornography, homosexuality, all sin. The seventh commandment applies to all sexual sins. That's the first thing that Jesus' interpretation does. It sets the standard so high. The second thing Jesus' interpretation of the second commandment does, right, by setting the standard so high, it makes it impossible to keep. By Jesus' interpretation of the second commandment, in other words, we are all adulterers. Just like the Sixth Commandment, where just to be angry is murder, by Jesus' standard of the Seventh Commandment, we are all guilty of adultery. We are all adulterers. And this is why the gospel is so important. We are all sinners, we are all in need of God's grace you've committed a physical adultery or if it's just been inside your heart you're a sinner in the sermon on the mount jesus sets forth an impossible standard of righteousness it was one of his purposes you will not be saved by keeping the law that's how you're trying to have a relationship with God, if that's how you're trying to earn salvation somehow, you will not be saved, because the standard's too high. Jesus taught that unless your righteousness exceeds, goes beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees, who were considered the most righteous people in that community. Unless it it, it exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 20. That you must be perfect, absolutely perfect, never once lusting within your heart, ever. Never once being angry, unrighteously angry with a brother, ever. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew five forty eight. That's the standard. According to Jesus, all people are sinners. The law just exposes our sin. It shows that all people have both murder and adultery within their heart. Meaning, again, I just want to say this over and over again, you will not be saved by being good. Our hearts are desperately wicked. We are not good. The law, the law just exposes that wickedness. It reveals the wickedness within Therefore, we need to seek a new heart. We need to seek a righteousness that is not our own, a foreign righteousness, a righteousness outside of us, a righteousness that is perfect, absolutely perfect. So here's the good news. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 tells us, For our sake He, that's God the Father, made Him, Jesus, be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God it's only through faith in Jesus that we can be saved it's only by his righteousness a foreign righteousness an alien righteousness a righteousness outside of our own that we can be saved so this brings me to the second or last point this morning, the third question I want to answer. What should I do about my adulterous heart? What should I do about my adulterous heart? The first thing you need to do is seek the grace of God. To seek the grace of God, to seek salvation, trust in Jesus who was perfect, completely righteous. I said this last week, he he not only set the standard, but he kept it perfectly. He died on the cross for your sins. He was raised on the third day, meaning God was satisfied with his life and death and raised him from the death, paving the way for us. Trust in him this morning. The first thing we need to do about our adultery and sin is to seek God's mercy and grace through faith in Jesus. And I just want to say, if you haven't done that before, do that now said this last week. I'm going to say it again. Stop listening to the rest of the sermon and pray in your heart. You can hear your heart. You can see your thoughts. Pray in your heart for mercy and grace. Trust in His Son. If you're watching online, trust in His Son. It's your only way to a relationship with God. It's your only way to salvation. The law just makes that so clear. Right? This is what Jesus is doing in, in expanding on the law. He's just showing that there's, there's no one Scribes and Pharisees, you think you're going to make it to heaven because of your good works, and you're not good. Here's the, here's the law it's inward, not just external. But let me say this. If you are a Christian this morning, meaning you have trusted in Jesus for salvation, there's a second thing that you need to do. And it really, it's, it's pretty simple. It's not, it's not easy, but it's simple to understand. You've trusted in God's grace, you know that, that you have a relationship with Him, but you're struggling with lust. Simply do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes to get away from that lust. Now, you may say that sounds like legalism. It's not. Look at what it says Matthew 5, verse 27. If you could look at verse 27 once again. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now listen to what Jesus says. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What is Jesus saying here? Because this is one of those hard sayings of Jesus. These are one of those passages that we just kind of, most people read it and cringe and go, I I just don't understand, Jesus, what you're you're telling us to do. Is Jesus literally commanding self-mutilation here? To tear out your right eye? To literally cut off your right hand? That seems just way too radical. And, to be honest, it it doesn't fit his teaching on adultery with with what he just said. I mean, think about it for a second. If lust is is a heart problem, meaning inside, so much so that that lust in the heart comes before even looking, it's what causes the look, then why tell us to do something external? Think about that. If you tear out your right eye and don't deal with the heart, what do you think the left eye is going to do? I-, I can promise you this. It'll probably do it twice as much to make up for the right eye. The lust. It's external action. The problem's internal. So what is Jesus saying? You know, I think most people teach this, say that this is hyperbolic language or figurative language. Jesus is exaggerating here. Jesus is not speaking, speaking literally. It's not literally tear out your right eye. It's more like put a filter on the computer. It's not literally cut off your right hand. It's more like get rid of your smartphone if you need to. And get rid of your TV if it's causing you to lust. Or don't go to the beach or to the gym. But let me ask you a question. Is that that radical? I don't think it is. Let me ask another question. Is that dealing with the heart? No, just like tearing out the eye and cutting off the hand, that's just externals. It may be helpful, don't get me wrong. Those may be good ideas but they're externals. It's not going to stop what's going on in the heart. Listen, I believe this is a completely wrong interpretation. I think Jesus' main point is way, way more radical and very logical. This is what he's saying. And the key phrase is, it is better. It is better to be mutilated in this life and go to heaven than to be whole in this life and go to hell. Let me just ask: Isn't that logical? Let me just think about the the life here. It's just a vapor. Eternity is eternal. Isn't that logical? Let me ask another question: How many of you actually believe? Let me be clear. When Jesus says, tear out your right eye, cut off your right hand, he is not telling us how to stop sinning. Those actions won't start, stop the heart from sinning. Re- really, to understand this teaching, you have to understand the cultural context that Jesus was in. Right? He was speaking to a culture that he knew would understand certain things when he said certain words. In this culture that he was talking to, the eyes and the hands were considered the most valued body parts. And, And that makes sense. In our culture, they're probably the most valued body parts too. But especially in that culture, the right eye and the right hand. Let me just ask a couple questions. Where is Jesus sitting right now? The right hand of the Father. Where did Joseph go when he was raised to the second command of Egypt, the right hand of Pharaoh. Let me just take it outside of the Bible. What what is historically chopped off in many Eastern cultures when you stole the right hand? So Jesus wasn't teaching people how to stop sinning. It wasn't like two easy steps to stop sinning. Tear out your eye, cut off your hand. Probably not easy steps. That's not what he's saying. He was calling the listeners to make a value judgment. The value of this life versus the value of eternity. He is saying eternity is infinitely more valuable than this life. So much so that it is better that you lose one of your members in this life than that your whole body go into hell. He is saying that the worth, that's such an important word, the worth of this life does not compare to the worth of eternity. And what is eternity? Why is eternity so valuable? Why is it worth so much? Well, Jesus Jesus tells us in John 17 verse 3, he says this, this is eternal life that they know you. Eternal life is simply knowing God. Eternal life is is having a relationship with God for eternity. It's finding joy. It's finding joy in the one thing that will bring us the most joy in the world, the glory of God for eternity. That's why it's so valuable. Meaning, Jesus is saying the worth The worth of this life does not compare to the worth of having a relationship with God for eternity. It doesn't compare. And therefore, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes to pursue a relationship with God, even if it means sacrificing everything. Sacrificing everything in this life, even if it means being mutilated in this life. Even if it means sacrificing your most valuable essence assets, assets, your your right eye, your right hand. Now that's a radical teaching. And it's a teaching we find throughout all of Scripture. It's not anything new. Scripture is just clear on this. It's what we see throughout Scripture, all of Scripture, all of Scripture, listen, is a value judgment. What does your heart value? It's a value judgment. What is worth more, this earthly life or God? What is worth more, the creation or the creator? And think about it. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what happened? They made a value judgment within their heart. The fruit and all that was promised, the creation, versus a relationship with the creator, God. They... Exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped the creature or the creation rather than the creator. That's Romans one, verse twenty-five. All of scripture is a value judgment. In fact, turn with me to Philippians chapter three verse seven. I just really want you to see this. I want you to see that Jesus' radical teaching actually is not radical when it comes to the the canon of Scripture. It's what we see on almost every single page of Scripture. This is Paul writing. I I love the book of Philippians because every other word in the book of Philippians is the word joy. You know, I think we picture Paul, a lot of us are... Wrongly, because we see a lot of his stern teachings throughout the New Testament. I just really believe, as I've studied Paul, if we met him, he would be the most joy-filled person that you've ever met. In fact, people would would see him and go, what do you have that I lack? Verse 7 tells us, look what it says. Whatever gain I had, this is before he was a Christian, Paul, whatever gain I had... I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. There it is, right there. You see it? A value judgment. Whatever I had, I counted as lost. Everything that that I valued before I became a Christian, everything that was worth so much to me before I became a Christian, I I count as lost now for the sake of Christ. It's a value judgment. Indeed, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost. Is this hyperbolic language? No. What's everything? Everything. What did Paul lose? His family, his friends, his wealth, his honor. In an honor-shame culture, that was everything, and he lost it. Paul even lost his health. If you think Jesus is using hyperbolic language, you'd be mutilated for for the sake of the kingdom— Paul's flesh was literally mutilated in this life for the sake of Christ. Five times 40 lashes minus one. You know what his back would have looked like? Just one time. One time 40 lashes minus one. You know why it's minus one? Because people didn't think you could survive past that. God didn't want people to die. His back would have been torn to shreds five different times. The pain at night sleepless nights because he couldn't get comfortable. Beaten with rods, once stoned, to the point that they thought he was dead and dragged him out of the city. You know how disfigured he must have been by the end of his life? You know what? Eventually he lost his right eye because he lost both his eyes when his head was chopped off for the sake of Christ. says in verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Why count everything as loss, Paul? why? Why suffer so much, Paul? He tells us, verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It was worth it. value judgment I count, I consider I weigh it out that's what he's saying everything worthless everything worthless compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord Paul sacrificed everything for a greater worth you know what that is? worship it's true worship What we do Sunday mornings when we sing together, that's not necessarily worship. That's praising God. Worship is valuing your relationship with God so much that you would sacrifice everything for Him. That's true worship. For His sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ compared to Jesus, in other words, compared to a relationship with God, it's all rubbish. Everything this life has to offer compared to Christ is rubbish. It's not that it's worthless. There's things in this life that are worth so much, but compared to Christ, worthless. Compared to the worth of Christ, rubbish. Let me ask a question. Do you have faith that God is worth that much? That's the heart issue. That's not an external, that's an internal. Do you love God so much that you're willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of Christ? Again, Paul says, For his sake I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. does this have to do with adultery? What's this have to do with lust? Everything. Everything. The only way you're going to stay away from lust, from pornography, from adultery, from lusting within your heart, from not looking when your heart wants to, the only way that you're going to stay away from lust is if you truly believe, you truly have faith that there is a greater pleasure, a greater joy, a greater happiness out there. Let me just get super practical and real this morning. If you're addicted to pornography, which statistically there's probably many of you that are, men and women, by the way, If you're addicted to pornography, I only only know one way to freedom. One way to freedom. Faith. Faith. Faith in the surpassing worth found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Believing in your heart that Christ is worth rejecting everything this world has to offer. The the temptation of the pleasures that that are right there, that are a click away. In other words, you have to fight fire with fire. In fact, you have to fight fire with a much greater fire. Fight the fire of of lust and sex and pornography with the infinitely greater fire, of the surpassing worth and joy found in a relationship with God heart issue. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying when he says, it is better. It's a value judgment. It's inside. It is better for you to enter life, eternal joy and pleasure with God, with one eye, meaning sacrificing everything, your greatest assets, than to have two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. And temptation comes The only way you will choose obedience is if you truly believe, you have faith in your heart that obedience will bring more joy, more pleasure, and more happiness in the long run. That's faith, it's worship, that's trusting God. Again. The only way that you will walk away from something as powerful as sex and lust is if you truly believe within your heart that a relationship with God is worth infinitely more than anything else. More than any pleasures, more than anything this world has to offer. And if you truly believe that, listen, you will do whatever it takes. (laughs) You'll do whatever it takes. It'll just be the fruit of your beliefs. It'll be the action that just comes out of your faith that God's worth it. You'll be willing to sacrifice everything for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Therefore, if you are a Christian this morning and you're struggling with lust, Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 do whatever it takes because your relationship with God is worth it. It's worth it. It's infinite joy. Let's end with Paul's wisdom one more time. Philippians 3.8 says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father in heaven, God, we come to you with humble hearts. We come knowing, Lord, that we fall so short of the standard that many of us have may never murdered that many of us may never have committed adultery physically lord but all of us have done both in our hearts that we deserve death and not just physical death but eternal death because you're an infinitely valuable God, and we have sinned against you. We have rebelled against you. Therefore, the punishment is an infinite punishment. Yet, out of your love, you sent your Son. Who died on the cross for our sins. Who paid the price we owed. But He also lived a perfect life. He lived up to the standard. Perfect righteousness, and it's offered to us. It's offered to anyone that would put their faith in Him, and trust in Him. And you've proven this by raising him on the third day. God, for us that are Christians this morning, Lord, I hope the the message is clearly heard that you are worth it. That yes, it may take getting rid of the smartphone, getting rid of the TV. It may take putting filters on the computer. It may take all types of things, Lord, but it's not the externals, it's the internal. it's, It's knowing that you are worth it. you are a treasure and that we should treasure you over any other treasures of this world. God, I pray that that is all of our hearts here at Country Oaks in your son's name. Amen.